Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendour, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Now that first line is rather confusing, don't you think? The Lord says to my Lord, say what? Sit at my right hand. Sometimes scripture just sounds confusing. Who exactly is this psalm written about? Some have thought that it's about David. But we're told that David wrote this psalm, so it's not God telling David to take a seat. David wrote this about someone that he called Lord. Someone who is greater than the king. And it's confused people in Jesus' time as well. Some thought it was written about David's son who became king. But Jesus squashed that idea too. In Mark 12, we read that Jesus was teaching in the temple when he said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him greatly, uh, gladly. You see, now the name of Christ, we call him Jesus the Christ. Christ means anointed one. So at least the conversation amongst the scribes was about the one who is the anointed one, the Messiah. Obviously, Jesus hadn't been born, but this psalm talks about the Messiah as already existing. It's written in past tense, and yet it looks forward to events that haven't happened. This is why it gets so confusing. If you look closely, though, you'll notice that the first name, Lord, is written all in capitals, and the second one isn't. Whenever you see the name Lord all in capitals, it's because the Hebrew text has used the name Yahweh, God the Father. It's the God that Israel served as creator, the one who rescued them out of Egypt. But the question is, who's the second Lord? David's writing about someone greater than himself, who obeys the will of Yahweh. Jesus used this psalm in the temple to declare, that's me. I'm the one that David wrote about. This psalm is one of the great messianic psalms of the Bible. It anticipates the coming of Jesus and talks about his kingship. But more than that, it's written, written anticipating that what Jesus did on the cross is already complete. 
David's written about the existence of Jesus in our time. He's done the work of salvation and is told by Yahweh to take a seat on the throne. It's written after his death on the cross, but before his return for us. See, this psalm is about the Messiah who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. King Jesus is both a royal king descended from David and the divine king who pre-existed David. So what does David reveal about him that we need to take note of? If this, if this psalm is written set in our age and it reveals some important insights, then those insights are going to have an impact and a significance for us. So who is this king? Firstly, David is respected in scripture and in Jewish culture as the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was anointed as God's chosen king well before King Saul was done. God gave Israel the king they wanted, but Saul was not a great king. He felt threatened by this shepherd boy who turned up at the battlefront and did what none of his warriors could do. David defeated Goliath. Not because David was great, but because David's faith in God was great. But even having been anointed as God's chosen king, David didn't take the throne until many years later. He had the opportunity to take the throne by force. He had the perfect opportunity to assassinate Saul in a cave. But instead, he chose to trust God's plan and God's timing. If God said that he would be king, then that was enough for David. When he did finally take the throne, David united the northern and the southern regions of Israel into one mighty kingdom. He returned the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with humanity, to, his, to Jerusalem, which he made the capital of Israel in obedience to God's plan. And yet as great as David was, he sees himself as less than the one who's told to sit at God's right hand. That king was greater. That king was more powerful than himself. In verse 1, David called him Lord, which means David served him. He wrote about the mighty scepter, the symbol of a king's power. But this king's scepter went out from the throne with the endorsement and the empowerment of the Lord in capitals. Yahweh. There is no greater power and authority in all of creation than that. Seeing that, of course David would bow to this king, and so should we. That's the point. If even the great king David called this anointed king Lord, shouldn't we? 
David, of all people, understood what authority meant. As king, he had entire kingdoms bowing to him. He would have been, it would have been easy for David to think that he was up there with the best of them. What reason would he have to bow to any other king? And yet he made this king his lord because he recognised where this king's authority and power came from. He could see who this king really is. Do we? Really? I said before that this psalm is set in our age. It's describing a reality that exists right now. Do we really get that? Do we understand what that means for us as we live? Do we live as if we believe it? Do we bow before the King Jesus, ready to hear his voice and obey? Or do we still see him as the baby in the manger, just a weak, defenceless human like the rest of us? Do we think of ourselves as just as capable of ruling the world as he is? Do we try to tell God how to do things? David had every reason to complain about the long wait that he had before he finally became king. David had every opportunity to take his fate into his own hands and to knock King Saul out of the picture. No one would have blamed him. He'd been anointed as the king. But instead, David trusted God's plan. He trusted God's timing because he knew that God is God, not David. According to the picture described in this psalm, Jesus, like David, is waiting for the day when his rule is made complete. Time after time, Jesus demonstrated complete trust in his Father. And as the Son of God, Jesus knows the Father better than anyone. In fact, the two are one, so intimately connected that when Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus followed his Father's plan and timing so much that he was prepared to walk into Jerusalem knowing that he was walking toward his own cross. And he didn't resist. He didn't try to talk his way out of it. He accepted his father's will completely. His father's will was all about saving you and me. And now he sits on the throne at his father's right hand, patiently waiting for the signal from his father that the day has arrived. The time for judgment has come. David wrote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just as David waited for God's timing, Jesus waits. He looks forward to the next part of the Father's plan when your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. If David must have found it tough to wait for the throne... Imagine the anticipation that must be building up in Jesus. He longs for you. His heart aches to be physically with you. 
to restore you and give you perfect peace. That is what his reign is all about. And until that exists, his reign is not complete. But for now, he sits on the throne and waits, watching everything that Satan is doing to his world. He knows he has the power to defeat his enemy. And in fact, he's already dealt the death blow to Satan on the cross. And yet he waits for his father's timing. He's done what was needed to rescue us. And yet he patiently waits to take us out of this world the way he wants to. Why does he wait? Why not charge in now and annihilate all the evil and lead us out of here? Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He doesn't want anyone to miss out. He holds himself back because he loves the next person just as much as he loves you and me. And I'm so glad that he waited long enough for me to be saved because now I have eternity with him to look forward to. If he hadn't waited, I wouldn't have that. Nor would you. If you've been saved... It's because despite the suffering and anguish of generations of Christians before you, Jesus waited for you. Other Christians were persecuted, but Jesus waited for you. That should clue us up to what's in God's heart. We need to be all about saving just one more. That's why we are still here. The Christian life isn't about us. And yet we often worry about how hard life is for us. It's about others. We need to follow Jesus, who said nothing is too much to endure for the sake of saving one more lost sheep. That's the kind of king he is. Jesus is a king like no other king. He rules differently to all other kings. He sits on the throne and waits patiently, but he is by no means twiddling his thumbs while he waits. The job of atonement is complete. The fact that Jesus sits on the throne shows us that his work of salvation is finished just as he cried out on the cross. But Jesus actively rules today. Right now, even while he waits. But he's doing it in a different way to every other king. You see, earthly kings rule by establishing borders, a land where their word is law. They set up boundaries which are defended from within. We still do that today, don't we? We defend our borders. And inside those borders, everything is under the rule of the king. No dispute, no rebellion, no other kings to compete. And occasionally, if the king wants more land, their armies march out into the neighbouring lands and defeat their armies and establish complete rule for their king there. The boundaries are moved, expanded, 
everything inside those boundaries belongs to that king. But David wrote that the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. What kind of king rules within the midst of their enemies? That's such a precarious position for a king's rule. And yet it's precisely the way that God's king does it. God's kingdom is here on earth right now. Jesus came to wrestle it back from the strong man who'd taken over. He came to confront and defeat Satan. Now, this kingdom exists in the hearts of individual Christians all around the world. And as Christians, we live in a world that is becoming more and more hostile towards God and us every day. In the West, for hundreds of years, we have enjoyed the freedom of our faith. But that's not normal. Christ's rule is in the midst of his enemies. That means two things for us. Firstly, the persecution of Christians does not mean that Christ is not ruling from his throne. He is. He just does it in a way that bewilders us. Your physical circumstances are not an indication of whether God loves you, whether he saved you, or whether he even exists. We're part of a kingdom that exists in the midst of the king's enemies. So that means that every Christian is going to feel the pressure of living in a hostile land. See that as an assurance that you are in his kingdom. Secondly, if you're going to serve the purposes of your king, we have to take our eyes off the difficulties of living in that hostile land and focus on expanding the kingdom of our king. Jesus is king. And his rule is motivated by winning just one more soul at a time. Saving one more person who he's been waiting for. Holding back judgment day four. You see, God's got us on a bus. He's holding that bus at the bus stop for that one person to make it. So we need to find them and help them get on that bus. That's how we fight. That's how we serve God's kingdom. Paul wrote in Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The king we serve is a spiritual ruler who operates in ways that we find hard to understand because we're mostly physical people living in a physical world. And that means that the weapons we fight with are different to the way that the rest of the world fights. It means that the armour that we put on is spiritual armour meant to protect us on the spiritual battlefield. It means that the real enemy of our king is a spiritual one called Satan, not the people that he's deceived and manipulated. They are suffering too. Jesus sits on his throne and he knows that there is at least one more out there who needs saving. I know that because he hasn't come yet. And he's sending us to get them. 
And you know what? Looking at what's going on in the world has got me very convinced that we haven't got much longer to find them. We've been given road signs, marker points to look for. They're written in scripture. And when these things happen, you know that the end is getting pretty near. But rather than fight that, rather than fight what Jesus told John is inevitable, we need to see those things as warnings to get on with finding the people that God's waiting for. We need to get on with the business of saving souls, not distracting ourselves with protecting our borders. So here are three tools that you can use in that fight. I've even made them all start with P so that they're easier to remember. That's, that's a We Care initiative. <laughs> Firstly, participation in the secular world. How are we going to find lost people if we never meet them? David described the kingdom as existing in the midst of the enemy. Now, I don't think it's helpful for us to see the people around us as our enemies. They're captives of the spiritual enemy that we fight. Our task is the same as the one that Jesus declared for himself, setting captives free. And that means that we need to go places where we will meet them and become friends with them. And I think there's something that we can do together as a church in this. Maybe there are times when we as a church can be out there rather than in here. We can look for and grab hold of opportunities to get out of this building into society in ways that win them over. Secondly, if we're going to get the ears of the people in society, we need to earn the privilege to speak. It's the authenticity of our actions matching up with the words that we preach that will do it. We're only going to be allowed to speak in today's world if we prove that we firstly got something worthwhile to contribute because we no longer live in an age where the Bible or our faith has authority. Christians over the years have done a lot to discredit our faith and the tactics that Satan's used to feed lies and deceit into the people have worked. Now, if we claim to be a people of hope, who have hope, we need to live in ways that demonstrate that truth to demonstrate the reality of that hope, that we really believe it. If we claim to be people who hold the answers, we need to demonstrate that, what we, really, that we really understand the problems that people are facing and that we're prepared to do something about it. We've got to walk the walk as well as talk the talk, not to prove that we're better than them, but to find the ones that Jesus is waiting for. And thirdly, because this is a spiritual battle that we're engaged in under a spiritual king, we would be foolish and negligent not to pray. Because praying is a spiritual activity that teaches our hearts to rely on God in the battle, not ourselves. Praying teaches us that we are not gods ourselves, that we really do need God to be God and to do what God does. Praying calls on the spiritual power and authority of our king 
to step in and exert his sovereignty and rule against his spiritual enemy. Without prayer, everything we do in this world would be like vapour, here today and gone tomorrow, because we're told that this physical world, with all its corruption, death and disease, will be destroyed. The physical stuff will be gone. It's only the spiritual stuff that lasts. David wrote that the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. That is a certainty. Yahweh has made up his mind. That's his plan. There's no doubt. So there you go. There's three tools for us to use together in this battle. Three Ps for us to exert the rule of our king in the midst of our enemies or his enemies. And there's one more thing that we need to see in this psalm. The fact that Jesus is not just a king. He's also our priest. You see, normally in Israel, the roles of king and priest were kept separate. But for the first time ever, and the only time, they were brought together in King Jesus. Not only does he rule as king, but he's permanently mediated the relationship between God and his people, the way that the priests in the temple used to do when they made sacrifices on behalf of their people. It's his righteousness that makes the difference, not our own. Which is why David wrote that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a name that means king of righteousness. And as a priest, Melchizedek lived in Abraham's time and he, he stood for what was right when most people around him wouldn't. And so David wrote that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God has declared that the righteousness of Jesus, who did what is, was right when no other human could do it, who exchanged his own righteousness for our unrighteousness to die on a cross, God has declared that that will last forever. It is eternal. It cannot be revoked or taken from you. We can commit ourselves to the work of finding lost sheep, knowing that nothing in this world can change God's mind about saving us because it's based on the righteousness of Jesus. Our priestly king has mediated our relationship with God for all eternity. He's given us a future kingdom that is so much better than this world. So why would we want to fight to hang on to anything that this world can offer? We can give it all up. We can give it all up for the mission of finding one more lost person. Someone whose God has waited for since creation. And we can introduce them to the king who sets them free. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the insight that you gave David about who your son is, even before your son was born. 
We thank you that he saw a vision of what is happening right this very minute. Thank you that you waited for us. Help us please to be patient. Help us to persevere. Help us to tolerate the inconvenience of suffering. So that we can like Jesus is. Follow his example and wait for the next person who needs to be saved. Help us to find them. Help us to be diligent in hunting them out. And use us in whatever way you want to. To bring them into your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.